Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of 12 podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our fifth episode, we'll talk about help and talk about the moment the Beatles revolutionized pop music. And we'll watch the four lads as they try to stop Clang from sacrificing Ringo, so stick around. As with every month, here to help me through the swirl of the Beatles discography is Rob Jones, a music critic and writer for the music blog The Delete Bin. What's up with you, Rob? Oh, I'm fine, Graham. What's up with you? I'm... That was rhetorical, sorry. <laughs> and joining us once again this month is Shannon Dohar, a Beatles fan and frequent contributor to the Doctor Who podcast Reality Bomb. Hi there, Shannon. Hello, great to be back. Oh, great to have you back. Okay, so by now we're five episodes in, so the recap is going to be really, really simple. There are 12 studio albums by the Beatles, more or less. There are 12 months in a year. You do the math. That's all I'm saying. So, uh, with uh, that recap done, <laughs> why don't we go to this month's selection, Help, uh, which was released on the 6th of August, 1965. So here's everything you need to know about Help in two minutes, more or less. Well, when I was young, was so much younger than today. I never, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Now, were you telling That's when it hurt me I'm feeling like this I just can't go on anymore Another girl Another girl She's sweeter than all the girls And I made quite a few Make a point Of taking her away from you That's what you do yeah. The way you treat her What else can I do? Robert John Davies Jones. Oh my goodness, my whole name. Are you mad at me or something, Graham? 
<laughs> no, I just I just thought it would be a good rhetorical device. All right, uh, <laughs> let's do this thing. All right. So two albums ago, we had this. If you're feeling sorry and sad, I'd really sympathize. Don't you be sad, just call me tonight. This album, we have this. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Now, we've talked about the development of the Beatles have made as a band leading up to this, but what finally clicked into place this time? And you're asking me, Graham? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am, Robert John Davies oh. Jones. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, well, what clicked in, I suppose, is the uh, working relationship between uh, the band and George Martin, I would think. Um, I think yesterday is a really good uh, example of, of that. And uh, I think the relationship uh, was building its bonds of trust. I think that was the, the, the big thing that probably kicked in here. And uh, yesterday and a, a, a number of other tracks on this record uh, show that quite strikingly. So Shannon, do you, what, what do you think kind of clicked into place here? What Rob was saying about George Martin and, and there's a level of trust in the development of the album. I think it just sounds, it sounds weird to say mature this early on in the, in the year, but it does kind of feel very mature to me and it feels very put together and it's, um, it's very contained. I love this album. Now, this is a really surprising album for me anyways, in many ways. Shannon, were there any surprises for you? Well, there was the kind of surprise of realizing that there was a uh, track listing difference from what I was listening to as a kid. <laughs> but it's American, so there was a little bit of a mind trip going on there. What was surprising to me, though, was how many how many different genres they really got in here while it still felt very cohesive. Um that was very surprising to me. I was not expecting, like, I've just seen a face completely dropped out of my mind until I heard it again. And I was very surprised by that track for a lot of reasons. And yeah, there, there were a lot of little surprises. Rob, were there any surprises for you? Uh, not so uh, much surprises, but certainly uh, I'll echo the idea of, of different sort of musical influences playing in, into here. Most notably, uh, Bob Dylan uh, in You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, which is practically a Bob Dylan song. Yeah. Um, and uh, just a lot of country stuff. I mean, they had done country stuff before on, on other albums, but, but here it's really quite striking. Uh, Ringo on uh, Act Naturally, which is a, a Buck Owens tune. They, they recorded it kind of cheekily, I think, for this because it was, you know, about being in a movie and stuff like that. But uh, they they were kind of having fun, I think, with this with with this uh, record and just kind of playing around with different approaches to writing pop songs. So that that's kind of not su again not surprising, but but certainly uh, notable. It's a notable thing about this record, I think. I was surprised to hear the um, that there were covers again. Just you're mentioning uh, the Ringo song reminded me about that. I was not expecting to hear covers anymore. Yeah, yeah, and dizzy and dizzy Miss Lizzie uh, closing yeah. the record was I I kind of think is weird, but uh, yeah, it's a but, strange note to end on. I I suspect John Lennon in that uh, you know hearing the Paul song and and him thinking you know what we got to end on the rock and roll so let's do Larry Williams yeah. you know let's. Let's do Dizzy Miss Lizzie. For me, I found surprising the fact that it it's an album kind of like Hard Day's Night in that it ties in with a movie and it has lots of radio-friendly singles, but 
what it does different is that it innovates the hell out of everything. I mean, stuff like I Need You with all the, with all the interesting stuff with, with the with the delay pedals and you were, what you were just saying, Rob, about you got to hide your love away. I mean, there's, yeah. it's this album that tries to innovate on practically every track in some way or another. Privets nicely to uh, talking about what are the tracks we loved on the album. And I'm going to go first because I want to talk about Help because this song was a complete and total revelation to me. Um, up until uh, the start of this month, when when I listened to the song, "Help" was just kind of a piece of the furniture. It was like, oh yes, it's that song. It's the title song from from the Beatles' second movie, and yes, it, it's a big hit, and isn't it great? And, but I really listened to it, and I was just so stunned by it. It is, I would say, on a par with "Yesterday" for the kind yeah. of innovation, and it is lyrically so sophisticated. It is lyrically much more sophisticated than I think most of the album. I, I think the Beatles' subsequent albums are trying to catch up to the lyrical sophistication of help that opening is has such an incredible undertow to it help i need somebody help not just anybody help you know i need someone it really feels like you're being sucked into something. I love that. And the backing lyrics, that, that sort of, you know, at times they're echoing what's being sung and at sometimes they're presaging what's being sung. It's, it's sort of like yeah. you're bouncing back and forth in time with it. And then there's Ringo's drumming, which is superb. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. adore this song. I can't, I, I have a lot of feels about this song. Um, I have a lot of feelings Fair about this song. So anyway. I'm so I... excited for you. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I think another thing, I think another thing, Graham, if I can, if I can interject. Oh, by all means. Um, I think, uh, I think another thing about uh, that song is it ties into something that we chatted about when we talked about uh, a hard day's night, uh, particularly uh, in reference to John Lennon and his approach to writing songs in general, uh, and that is that um, he's writing about himself, but he's making it, he's packaging it in a pop sort of way, so as you know, it's you don't quite. You don't quite hear that he's talking about himself unless you really, really listen to it. Um, and again, it's uh, it's one of those. It 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 literally is like a cry for help sort of thing. You know, like he's saying, you know, I'm I'm in a confusing part of my life and I I don't really know how to how to proceed. Uh, and you know, this was a difficult time apparently for John Lennon. So it's it's a great up song and it's it's totally anthemic and everything like that but it's also very personal uh and i think you you, you know we'll see more and more of of that type of thing throughout you know the, the rest of, of of the beatles output particularly with john lennon yeah i mean that's the thing about it i mean I, when i was listening to help i was thinking there's some really great sophisticated music happening but the lyrics are still you know a lot of it's stuff like you're gonna lose that girl or you know another yeah. girl or stuff like that i mean I, and I'm, but then you get help and it's just yeah. the, the bar is so raised on that i i guess i've sort of you know basically said my piece um <laughs> shannon what's what's, All right. what's your favorite <laughs> well i'm actually i'm gonna pick a trio because i think that these three songs in succession is really interesting so we've got you've got to hide your love away, which is very Dylan-esque, but is also very John Lennon in that like moody John Lennon lyrics that we've been talking about. Mm. Followed immediately by "I Need You," which is one of the most George songs that I have ever heard of his George songs, mm. and then another girl, which is so kind of stereotypical Paul McCartney. So when I started listening to this album kind of over and over again, those three tracks in conjunction with each other became kind of a microcosm for me of the entire Beatles experience. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
I can, I can, I can, I can, I can get, I can get behind that. I really love you. You've got the, you've got the hide your love away. So I, yeah, I really feel like these three tracks in conjunction is, is a microcosm of the Beatles experience because they're so stereotypical to each of them in a way that's very honest. It doesn't feel like you're glossing over and losing any of their individual kind of lyrical choices. Like I need you is such a George song, as I was saying, but it's, it's so simple, but the rhyming is really poetic. It's really beautiful. We have that kind of delay pedal whammy bar situation, which like a sad whammy bar is a very impressive thing to do. (laughs) Please remember how I feel about you. I could never really like when do we ever hear a sad whammy bar except for on a george harrison track like (laughs) yeah hearing a whammy bar at all in 1965 is still is still a pretty unique experience at that point i mean it sounds it sounds unearthly it it has it has a wonderful kind of effect of kind of making you feel like wow this is this this going against a song that says i need you is such an interesting effect it's sort of discordant it's very tumultuous and then to have it followed up immediately by another girl which is so paul and so kind of Mm-hmm. A bit of a happy-go-lucky love song, but it is a very well-crafted piece. It's a, a great track, and it's incredibly yeah. catchy. It's very well done. So those three put together for me, I just, like, I got a real hook on for those. I will say with Another Girl, though, uh, uh, in some ways, uh, it's probably one of the edgiest Paul songs that he's written. You know, he's mm-hmm. basically saying, you know, you and I had a good time, but I've met someone else, so uh, see you later. <laughs> you know, which is not exactly something you'd expect from the cute one. You know what I mean? It's 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 got a bit well, of a. Well, is it? <laughs> I, I take issue. I think it's exactly what you would expect from the cute one. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, Jane Asher, you're on notice. Um... <laughs> Rob, what about you? What's what's what? What are your favorites? Oh, I like all the sort of earthy ones. Uh, I like. Uh, you know, I, I think Lennon's my man on this one. Um, although I will say that one of the one of my favorites is uh, "I've Just Seen a Face." I think that song is one of the best songs that Paul McCartney ever wrote. Frankly, uh, it's it's just one of my favorites. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way, and I'd have never been aware. But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight. La, da, 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 da. Yes, I'm falling, and she keeps calling me back again. It's kind of got that country type of feel to it, and I love the uh, the opening guitar uh, bit, and uh, I love that it kind of starts off with a with the intro, and then it goes into the song, and it's it's a, at a faster tempo. I I, I just love that because it's so uh, unexpected. Uh, you've got to hide your love away, as Shannon mentioned that, but uh, it's one of my all-time favorites again it was one of the best songs that lennon ever wrote um and it is very dylan-esque but i think uh it's just i just love the the melody and i love the sort of uh waltz type of feel to it as well uh and uh it's only love which i've always loved it's it's uh it's it's a really sort of get in and get out type of song. Like it's 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 under two minutes long, but it's, it's such a powerful song that uh, and it's it's mature. I think Shannon, you mentioned that word mature, and uh, you know they're beginning to 
put in sort of complex emotional dynamics into their songs at this point in time. And it, it's only love is probably one of my favorite examples of that. I love the, uh, I love, I love the way that he, uh, he emphasizes the word bright. <laughs> it's, it's something I've always loved about that song since I was a kid. You talked about this earlier, but act naturally is probably the most overtly country song these guys ever did. And, but there's a lot of different genres in the album. You kind of go from the lush uh, chamber pop of, of yesterday to, to the sort of, um, to the sort of Dylan-esque kind of, you got to, uh, you've got to hide your love away to hard rock of ticket to ride. There's a lot of different genres here. So Rob, what's the trick of the Beatles in moving so fluidly between genres? Well, I think the trick is, uh, other than the fact that they were just good and they were just a good band, uh, I think they were still really hungry. As, as famous as they got and as, you know, as much adulation as they were uh, receiving at this point in time, they were still at heart music fans. And they listened to different types of music, you know, to feed their craft. They were still doing that groundwork. And I think that that's one of the reasons why they were able to take you know, like a folk rock type of sound, uh, that, that sort of jangly birds type sounds, uh, chamber pop, uh, all those types of different genres. And they were able to integrate uh, those sounds and still make it sound like the Beatles. You know, they weren't doing like a pastiche of anything. They weren't trying to imitate any one artist. Uh, they were able to take all those things and, and play with them and make them sound like the Beatles because they were hungry. You know, they were hungry they were uh they had really fertile uh, imaginations as far as uh songwriting and arranging um and so in in one sense you know there is no secret other than the fact that they were just they were just working really hard and and they were still loving what they were doing i mean i think it's true i mean i think i think the fact that they're fans is is really true i mean i i sort of look at this in terms of you know film directors I like, like uh, Martin Scorsese or uh, or Steven Spielberg or even a French director like Francois Truffaut. I mean, these yeah. are guys that watch films all their lives and they will move from a, a noir crime drama to a screwball comedy to an adventure film, you know, because mm -hmm. they've watched it all and they want to they do it all. And I think yeah. the Beatles are like that. I think, I think I, what makes the Beatles unique at the time was that they not only listened to it all, but they then did it, and they did it on the album. So they did something like Act Naturally, and they did it completely unselfconsciously. But but they actually recorded it instead of just doing something they just messed around in studio with. They actually put it on the album, mm -hmm. and, and and I think you start seeing that more and more as the '60s progressed with other bands like the Beach Boys, for example. Mm -hmm. They're they're another great example of a yeah. band that started out doing one thing and then realized then started doing other things that involved all their other interests in music. And uh, and the same with the Rolling Stones. The, the Rolling yeah, Stones, the Stones did, is another great example. Yeah, of that too. same same idea. I think what you were saying about film directors has a lot of truth here. I think that it works because they're so good. Uh, I think that they're so skilled and so talented at, at doing what they're doing that it, it carries through. Um, I did have a, some trouble with the track arrangements, though. Uh, I was getting a little bit hung up on that. For as well as they do carry off all of these different genres, and it does work as an album, because they are so talented, there are some weird track transitions, and I don't know that those all really work for me. I mean, definitely yesterday being between yeah. Dizzy Miss Lizzie and I've Just Seen a Face, like the transition yeah. specifically from the end of I've Just Seen a Face into yesterday is yeah. 
very jarring and not in a way that feels musically challenging to me. Uh, Like it doesn't feel like they're trying to do something interesting. It feels like they just didn't know where else to put it. I think too, it's important to note that yesterday we'll, we'll get into this, I'm sure, but um, yesterday was a real uh, departure uh, from what they normally would have done. And there was a lot of questions about whether or not that was even a Beatles song, you know, when Paul McCartney brought it to George Martin and uh, said, you know, I've got this song. And George Martin's first reaction was, wow, that that's great, but it doesn't sound like the Beatles, you know. So they, they probably had quite a bit of difficulty figuring out where it, it slotted in on this record, I imagine. But your point is taken, I mean, Shannon, I mean, if you put Yesterday After something like It's Only Love, there's a much more seamless transition between the songs. Yeah. It's it's a very odd to me because that, you know, the Beatles got very annoyed with Capital for sort of cutting up their records and, and, and stuff like that, but because they were very precious about, you know, keeping the same amount of tracks and, and their track placement, but their track placement is so very odd here and mm-hmm. it isn't very seamless and it isn't very well thought out, I think, in many ways. Mm. But I want to talk a little bit more about yesterday. We talked about that, Rob and I did, in our mini episode that was a tribute to George Martin's contribution. And we're going to talk about it again. And we're going to talk about it again. Well, I enjoyed it the first time, so I'm really going to love it the second (laughs) That's great. Here we go. Martin's contribution is probably unavoidable, but what else is so revolutionary about yesterday? It's difficult to talk about yesterday without talking about George Martin and what he brought to it. Um, And we, we, as you mentioned, Graham, we talked about that quite extensively in the George Martin special. Um, But I think the the most important thing about yesterday and why it works so well is that um, they were able to take, again, a, a, a disparate kind of, type of arrangement, different textures that they'd never tried before, and they still made it into a Beatles song. I think that is its greatest achievement, apart from the fact that it's just a beautiful song and it's it's the melody is just superb. Um, and I love that the fact that, you know, when, when Paul McCartney wrote it, he thought, wow, I, I can't have written this. This is, you know, this, this, this melody is so striking and such a you know, a shining beacon uh, in terms of a melody. I couldn't possibly have written it. So, you know, he went to different people that he knew and said, look, have you ever heard this before? Because I, I think I've written it, but I'm not quite sure. In some ways, like they turned a corner with that song, even though it, it technically is, you know, like a solo song because Paul McCartney was the only Beatle on it. So apart from what George Martin brought to it, which we mentioned before, which was that he put strings on it, but it doesn't sound cheesy. It sounds rich and lush and sad instead of saccharine you know that's that's the thing that really really makes this a success and that is that it's just it it sounds like the beatles you know and it's a different it's a completely different uh, approach and sound and everything but it still sounds like the beatles and i think the fact that it sounds like the beatles is really important because and i think what one of the revolutionary things this thing is is that it is not necessarily in what it does as a song, but in what actually happens with it uh, afterward, is that it's like throwing a rock into a pool and the ripples just go outward, outward. And so you have songs like Tomorrow Never Knows and and Within You, Without You sort of reflect the different sensibilities of other members, but they're still doing similar things that that, mm. that song did initially. Yeah, it, it, it definitely opened up uh, a vista for them. You know, they, they realized, oh, we can do songs that don't have drums and bass and a couple of guitars on it we can do whatever we want to and eventually that's exactly what they would they would do they would try all and and the the songs that you mentioned graham are really good examples but there's so many others they they were just willing to again they were hungry 
and they were they wanted to try new new things and they're music fans and they liked all kinds of music so you know like their their question was okay well how can we integrate all that stuff and still make it sound like like us i think that it's a sea change for for them i think that it's it allows the band to realize that they can make a song that is so dramatically individual i mean i was as we've been saying like Paul McCartney is really the only Beatle on the track and that it still sounds like the Beatles. So it opens them up to, to explore you know, their musical interests uh, in a more individual way and know that it will still work and they can still pull it off. And I think, I mean, it is easy to kind of get lost in the fact that Yesterday has been covered a million times by a million people. Kind of feels like the Beatles version of Hallelujah in a way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But similarly to that, you know, phenomenal Leonard Cohen song, when you really sit with Yesterday, you can't escape the fact that it is a gorgeous, gorgeous, moving, powerful song in mm. in its original recording. Like, you just cannot get away from that. It is a stunning stunning track. It really is. And that's that's the thing I was thinking about, is, is that this is just amazingly great music um that that whole chorus is is why she had to go it's just so incredible such an easy game to play it's music that just grabs you and draws you in what i find fascinating about the song is that it's a song that the beatles really didn't know what to do with in many ways they martin suggested they put it in paul mccartney's name and brian epstein said if you do that that's the end of the beatles so they mm. so that's not happening they offered it to other musicians to do as a song <laughs> they, uh, instead of them doing it and for the first two years it was out you know it was only an album track in the UK whereas it was a popular single by Matt Monroe it's amazing to me kind of how much the Beatles are kind of awkward with it and yet this is the song that defines them I strongly believe that it would have been the end of them if they had put it out as a single just as a Paul McCartney track because the band needed to realize that they could explore within the confines of the band and still work and still function yeah they needed yeah. to realize that they had that artistic freedom. In a way, it's a liberation of a track. But I think that's a good place to end our conversation on Help the Album. If you have anything you'd like to say, you can send us an email at beatles at gemgeekerrarebug.com or visit our website at yearwiththebeatles.podbean.com. I should really get around to getting a decent URL. And now, as we do every episode, we're going to have what we call extra credit homework, where we listen or watch some Beatles material that complements the album we're listening to. And, and this month, we've been watching this. Pardon me, sir. That's a very fascinating ring you've got there. Unless I'm very much mistaken. Is it? The dreaded sacred sacrificial ring of the dread Kaili. Please say no more. I can say no more. Excuse me, sirs. If he's to be sacrificed before the dread Kaili, why is he not painted red? That's a question I've never been able to pluck up the courage to ask him. Raz is my best friend, I will. What's this? Glasses. That's right, sir. They're glasses, sir. A victim is offered to the dread Kaili every day. All are happy to go. He who wins is privileged to wear the sacred ring from sun to moon, from moon to sun. And at the end of the happy day, is slaughtered, jolly, with a knife. 
and sacrificed jolly with a knife. Or so I'm told. With that ring. Three hours to live. Is that all? You have till five o'clock. Before a new victim is chosen. You are a lucky sir to be chosen. My old miserable mum would give her right hand to be chosen. What's this? A season ticket. What do you think it is? Oh, like a lot of season enemy soup. That's a clip from the 1965 film Help, which stars the Beatles as well as Leo McKern and Eleanor Braun, and it was directed by Richard Lester from a script by Charles Wood and Mark Bem. Now, Shannon, you told us the last time we spoke that you watched this and A Hard Day's Night in lieu of Saturday morning cartoons. How does Help hold up now? I did, and I was terrified. I was terrified to, to watch this movie again. It had been probably a decade. Um, and kind of as I was remembering more and more aspects of the plot, I was getting more and more nervous that it wasn't going to hold up. But it remains a kind of surrealist masterpiece. Uh, it is utterly bizarre and weird and funny and so very Beatles, and I love it. What about you, Rob? How, how does it work for you? It's similar to Shannon. Like, it's just weird in places. Like, there's a plot uh, with this one, which... You is know, there, though? <laughs> well, sort of, you know? Like, there's cult members, and they're after, <laughs> they're after Ringo's, and Ringo's put on a ring, and I can't remember exactly how he got on his finger in the first place. But, but you know... In my notes so- watching it, I was like, wait, where did he get this ring again? Yeah. yeah so it's sort of a plot, whereas A Hard Day's Night, there really wasn't a plot. It was just sort of a, a series of sort of set pieces I guess but help there's kind of a plot and it's it's really silly and you know it just looks like they're kind of having a laugh and kind of taking the piss frankly yeah. um, but but there are a lot of re- there's a lot of really funny scenes in it uh, and I imagine you're going to ask me what my favorite scene is eventually but I'm going to blow that for you Graham and tell you what that scene is right now uh, oh I thank uh, you Robert <laughs> I, I, I like all the weird little scenes in it um, and I think my favorite is probably during the uh, when they're in Switzerland and they're sort of skiing uh, and there's this ice fishing part where they, you know, they cut out a little circle of ice and then this channel swimmer comes up and says, white lives at Dover. And, uh, and then they, they just point, they don't even talk to the guy. They just kind of point and he says, thank you. And he goes back down into the, into the water and, and apparently swims to the white cliffs of Dover by, I don't know. But I thought that was when I was a kid, when I first saw that, I thought, Wow, now that is funny. <laughs> just that right there is funny. You know, it so is. I, it is yeah, funny. <laughs> I just love that. And there's all kinds of little pe- bits and pieces like that throughout the film, which which I love. I adore this movie beyond any comprehension. I, I have to say, for me, it is a Marx Brothers movie. It is pure and simple a Marx Brothers movie that they somehow kept in suspended animation and suddenly thawed out in 1965. And I adore it for that. It has that same kind of sensibility where there is kind of a plot, but it's really just a device to transport you from one bizarre set piece to another that is just progressively more and more funny. And I, I this is, I mean, and it's got Eleanor Braun in capes. So what more could you honestly want in a movie, in my view? So good. Yeah, so and good. and it helped to invent the monkeys, of course. That's, you know, the, the monkeys came out of, out of this type of aesthetic, right? It's true. Although, as you know, Rob, I, I am a huge fan of the monkeys, uh, both the TV show and the band. And I, I am really kind of surprised at how 
much more savage and how much more bite help has than the monkeys. Yeah, you know? that's There's true. the whole sequence when they're in the palace and Victor Spinetti's character is, is trying to get Ringo and he's proceeding to kill all these guards in there <laughs> while he's doing it. Yeah. And you're like going, this had never happened in an episode of The Monkeys. It's a yeah, scientist a, with a death toll. That's yeah. just I know. <laughs> and having the conversation during the poker game about whether or not Ringo really needs the finger. <laughs> it's just, I never really thought about the body count aspect of the film. Yeah, I, it's Hi. You know, it's a high body I, I did not I, I actually didn't actually re- yeah recall all that but yes you're right it's uh there there is that violent bit it is and it's, you know and I think I I love it for that kind of bite and I just love it for the kind of just the sheer kind of verve of it and it's, it's held together by nothing but you know Richard Lester's kind of just sensibility about these title cards that just say and then they did this and I just I just love that kind of it just it works well, yeah it's, and, it's a step away from George Harrison being a producer on Monty Python like when you start to yeah. talk about the oh yeah you know the the card scenes, and there was I took a picture, gentlemen, on my phone of the, um, the explosives <laughs> in the army base, yeah. and on all of the explosives is printed equal to exactly one millionth of all the high explosive exploded in one week. I did not repeat myself. It says explosive exploded in one week <laughs> of the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like bizarre attention to detail. Yeah. <laughs> it is really also very biting and very satirical and very, like, clearly George will go on to help Monty Python. Like, it, the, the line is very clear to me. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, George is great in this film. I mean, he has, he even gets an action sequence. I love that. The best. You know, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Ringo's great in this. John is stalwart. The only one who really doesn't do anything as much as is Paul. And I find it very odd because it's just, I found the same true in, in A Hard Day's Night. And I just blamed that on the fact that he had to go kind of nursemaid the father character uh, played by Wilfred Bramwell. But in this one, I found him just as much of a kind of damp squib. So Paul is the Zeppo, you're saying. Yes, he's, he's the Zeppo Paul of this March is the Zeppo. Oh, okay. Yeah. Something about <laughs> Paul Swagger does not translate to film, like at all, at all. You know, you can you can hear it in concert, and you can get to see it when he's performing, but in on film, it just does not work. And at some point, even like George makes a joke about it and is saying mm. like he's getting flirted with more than Paul, <laughs> and kind of like winks at Paul as like, oh well, it used to be you, didn't it, Paul? Like <laughs> saunters <laughs> off. <laughs> How does it compare to Hard Day's Night for you, Shannon? As much as I, I love, I love Help, and I still love Help, I'm relieved to say. Uh, it did kind of switch the balance of power in my mind. I think Hard Day's Night is a more masterful film. I think its satire is stronger. Um, I think it's it's a little bit more put together. It feels, it feels more like a film. And help feels more kind of like a series of delightful sketches. Yeah, it's so funny because I actually have uh, I would say the the opposite tack. I actually much prefer help. I mean, I love Alan Owen's script for A Hard Day's Night. It's very observed. It's very wry. But I just like the sheer outrageousness. I like the sheer outrageousness of the idea that the Beatles all live in the same house <laughs> with all these different levels. And and you know, there's a Wurlitzer organ that comes out of the ground. I love 
every it's just it's just one of those movies that gets dafter and dafter and 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 it's one of those movies that ends with you know what i can only describe as that 1960s everything ends and crazy stuff happens uh kind of yeah. ending but unlike you know something like say the party or or the prisoner uh it feels earned yeah. it feels like you know it's it's just it just feels mad and delightful and charming well because yeah. the whole thing has been that ridiculous so it doesn't feel like a cop-out ending it feels like the appropriate ending <laughs> Rob's already opted out of giving doing favorite scenes because he's given his favorite scenes. So I guess uh, I don't I, consider it opting out, Graham. I, I consider it to be you know a little bit of a subversive act on my part. See, Rob has done the Rob has done the subversive act of preempting answering what his favorite scene is. So I I, I guess I will give my favorite scene, which is uh, the Scotland Yard scene, which features uh, Patrick Cargill, who's this wonderful wonderful British character actor who who is just so wonderfully understated, and he works brilliantly in that scene because he is playing that role. I also love the uh, the scene with the tiger, <laughs> and everyone has everyone has to sing sing from the ode to joy in order. <laughs> it's so good. And it's so good. Led by Patrick Cargill, by the way. <laughs> it's such an awesome Oh god, it has no right. It has no right to be so hilarious. <laughs> what about you, Shannon? What's what's your favorite scene? Well, I am I am gonna be subversive in a way by saying, like, I have a lot of them. <laughs> um, so there's a couple there's a couple of things we gotta talk about that I can't let go. As far as like an actual scene, it's gotta be the curling, the curling scene on the ice, which mm. is I mean, I will be repeating, hey, it's a thingy, a fiendish thingy for all for all this. Very I've good. been doing it since I was six. I will never stop. Like, that is just hilarious to me. Yeah. They're all yeah. running around on the ice. Like, it's great. But, I mean, we also have to talk about, like, just the little throwaway lines. Like, that, particularly John, who never calls anyone by anything other than their title. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> Jeweler, you failed. Like, oh, scientist, you're not getting anywhere, are you, scientist? Like, these are, they're so, it's, why is he doing this? I don't know, but I love it. It's amazing. Yeah. But what I love compared to Hard Day's Night is that it has such a wealth of, of brilliant British character actors. You have Leo McKern, who is, is, it's just astounding as Clang, and and you have and you have Eleanor Braun, who is beautifully melodramatic, and and and, and Victor Spinetti is having a ball, and Spinetti is great. Yeah. I love him so. Much. I know, I know, and, and it's just great. I mean, what I find fascinating about the film is that it has um, is that it's sort of one foot off the ground, and I just and that works well in its favor. So, for example, you have an Eastern cult that's sort of the, and it's ironic in many ways because. It, they they actually went to India to go pursue Eastern spirituality about another three years later. They through this movie, George became interested in the sitar and and, and went to study with Ravi Shankar. But in spite of that, it's a movie with Eastern you know Eastern mystics and quote unquote. But it's done in such a way that it's not actually doing anything about actual people. It's just kind of one foot off the ground and it's just enough to make it work so it's not, it's, so it doesn't feel offensive like the party yeah. does or something like mm. that. Or, you know, mm -hmm. you're not kind of wincing at it. It actually just, it just it just, it's just buoyed along. There's a, there's one curious scene in it uh, that, uh, where they're sort of dressing, they're, they're sort of disguising themselves and they've got the sort of beards and things like that and they actually end up looking kind of like you know, how they would look later in their career so. which i thought was really weird like I, I i didn't know how they did that i know, you know but but it's especially a, I, george 
George yeah. looks exactly like George in like seven years. Like it's yeah. very bizarre. Now, Shannon, in our discussion of a hard day's night, you said something interesting. You said you thought in help you could see the cracks in the band's image that would eventually lead to their breakup. So I have to ask, I'm kind of required, what were those cracks? Well, I understand you are required. I do see them. Uh, I do see some cracks happening. I mean, I think that there's there's a couple of different cues. There's some visual stuff and there's also some kind of plot and script stuff. So with the visual, I mean, when you start out at the beginning of this film, they're all dressed the same. They're all living under the same roof. Um, it's very kind of hard day's night version of the Beatles. And around the middle, like when they start to go skiing, they'll kind of jazz themselves up a little bit and be a little bit more individualistic. And then by the end, they're all doing kind of whatever they want. And they're all dressed very, very differently. And they're also like all dressed very casually. Nobody is wearing it. There's not a tie in sight. <laughs> like they're yeah. They're living their own versions of their identities and you can see that visual visual progression from them all kind of being very buttoned up and wearing suits and matching having the same haircut to the end of the film where they all look like themselves you know mm. there's that kind of matchy matchy impression so kind of visually there's a huge tick there and also in the script I mean there's a little bit more bite to you know even though we had the moments in hard days night where they were saying oh well Ringo is depressed but he'll come back when he feels better and he just kind of does this you know when they are when they are all joking at the poker table about which finger Ringo you know, does he really he really need that finger it feels a little bit more biting than it did before and like they do kind of make a few more cracks about like well what are you really doing anyway and it it, it starts to feel like it's kind of fizzling out and you can see how for as much as the band was created in a way that will allow them to be very individualistic, that can only go for so long and that can only last for so long. And you start to see the cracks and you start to see kind of the disparate ways that their their professional lives are going to splinter and that they, they can't possibly stay together for, for that long. And I think, too, that that dovetails back to what we were talking uh, about yesterday and, and the reticence to put out that song as a Paul McCartney solo song you know it was brian epstein that yeah. vetoed it and it was important you know at that time uh for them to stay together as a group and and maybe maybe the cracks are being uh, were, were evident to to epstein at that time as well i think they probably were and i think they still had a lot to do and you mm. know there's a lot uh, obviously we got you know six more phenomenal groundbreaking records out of it so mm. That's that's for the best, but you do yeah. start to see those cracks much earlier than I think people start to, than people really remember. Well, on that bombshell, we'll have to uh, we'll have to call it a Sorry. close now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. We'll be back in a little while for our discussion of the Beatles' sixth album from later in 1965, Rubber Soul. That's next time on A Year with the Beatles. In the meantime, thank you, Rob Jones and Shannon Dohar. Thank you, Graham. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you, guys. I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next time. Me back again. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just a girl.